task and moved up. I appreciate it. I can always use the encouragement whenever I have an opportunity to teach. Um, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Jay. I'm the pastor for discipleship and formation here at Emmaus. Um, and as Vania said, we are happy to have you here at Emmaus. We believe in practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. Um, I want to echo the sentiments that were already given by Vania as well. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, I will say that it is a little surreal that I am teaching on Father's Day and the fact that this is actually my first Father's Day as a dad. So for those of you who, who um, know our story, uh, my wife, Erin, who's actually back in kids right now, um, we have been fostering and we're on the process of adoption. And so it was um, very humbling to have two little ones to wake up to this morning and to say happy Father's Day to me. So um, <clears throat> just something that's very surreal for me. Um, but um, obviously, we know the impact of our fathers on our lives. Um, my dad is actually here today, and I'm very grateful for him and the reflection that um, he has been to me of our Heavenly Father. Um, and so I want to recognize, you know, the impact of dads this morning. What does it mean to be a dad and, and, and how fathers have been um, uh, impactful for your own life. However, I do want to acknowledge that there are people in the room that do not have a great relationship with their dad. I know that there are many out there who are grieving the fact that they are not a dad yet. And so as a community, we want you to know and to embrace and understand that we are here for you. And that ultimately what we believe is that there, while we have our dads, right, and we believe in their love, it is but a, a dim reflection of a greater relationship of a father in heaven that we are to cling to and that we have. And so I want you to know that if you are someone who has not had a great relationship with your dad, um, to know that there is a Heavenly Father that loves you very, very much and encompasses the complete relationship that a father should have with you. So, um, but with it being Father's Day, everyone loves a good dad joke, right? So I thought, you know what? How about we have some dad jokes to start our time this morning? So I looked up the top dad jokes of 2023, which was interesting because I think most dad jokes were written like 30 years ago. But I thought I'd start off a time with some, some dad jokes. I really wish we had a drum set so that I could have the punchline comedic role, um, but that didn't happen. <clears throat> That's okay. So first dad joke. Have you heard about the restaurant on the moon? It's great food, no atmosphere though. I don't trust stairs. They're always up to something. Um, yeah, that one was really good, right? Eye roll, eye roll. Um, never date a tennis player. Love means nothing to them. What's a lawyer's favorite drink? Subpoena colada. And lastly, my favorite for all the Star Wars nerds out there, what did Yoda say when he saw himself in 4K? HDMI. <laughs> so, there are some dad jokes to start you off. What a way to start the teaching off this morning. So, um, for those of you who uh, have not been with us, um, and to recap a little bit, uh, this summer we have been going through the book of Hebrews. Um, 
Hebrews is a very interesting letter in the sense that we don't know who wrote it. Um, it was written to a Jewish Christian audience. Um, it was written to a community that was dealing with persecution, asking with a lot of questions about what do we do now that we are Christians. Um, and so we've been going through this, this book and we'll be continuing to go through this book. And we went through the first two chapters. Um, Benia started this out a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Josh was with us last week. Josh did a great job. I always love when Josh speaks because it's like theological roulette. You have no idea what dice is going to be rolled or what's going to come out. But hey, he's like, place your bets. We'll see what happens. Um, but he did a fantastic job. Um, and so today we are in Hebrews 3. Um, so today I'm going to ask that if you have a Bible that you open it. If you have a smart device, you have my permission to scroll through it and look at the scriptures only. Okay, you're not allowed to get bored and scroll Facebook or Instagram, just FYI. Um, but you are to keep that out and just kind of go through the chapter with us. Uh, I am not going to do a line-by-line exegesis of the chapter. So if that is your MO, your kind of where your wheelhouse is, I'm sorry to disappoint you. That's not where I'm going to be. But we are going to get a broader overview of Hebrews, Hebrews 3. We're going to recap and see and talk about what happened in chapters 1 and 2, how it relates to chapter 3, um, but ultimately to understand what God is trying to tell us, what he is warning us and what the author is warning us of in Hebrews 3. So um, I will give you a moment to get to Hebrews 3 and to pull that out. And I'm going to read all the way through the chapter, and then we will we'll talk about it a little more. So we good? Good? I need feedback, okay? I, I, can't, I can't talk to just a vacuum of space out here because I know that's not what's out there. So, <clears throat> so thanks, Cameron. Appreciate you, brother. All right, so Hebrews 3. And so... Dear brothers and sisters, and I'm reading from the NLT, sorry, I should let you know that. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house, and we are God's house. If we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ— that is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when he, we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. 
And who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were notable to enter his rest. This is the word of the Lord. So let's get some context of what's going on here. So the the exact date of the writing of the epistle to the Hebrews is not really known. We don't really know much about it. We've talked about that a little bit the last two weeks. We're not sure when it was written. We don't know who wrote it. Historically, there's people who think that the apostle Paul wrote it, but still there's a lot of, many scholars now today just don't believe that that's the case. They don't believe that Paul is the writer. Um, There are some things that match up with his writing style. It could have been written by somebody that was a friend of Paul or a cohort of Paul, but we're just not sure who wrote it. Um, And there are various theories on on when it was written. Um, Based on internal evidence and historical context, it's commonly believed that it's been written sometime between the late 60s and early 90s A.D., Um, And the specific communities or recipients of the letter are not explicitly identified within the text, though the title to the Hebrews is a traditional designation, but does not necessarily indicate that it was exclusively addressed to Jewish Christians. So again, this is most likely written in the Hellenistic period, Hellenistic meaning the influence of Rome. Um, It was written to Jewish Christians in that area and in that time. The letter seems to have been attended for a mixed audience of Jewish Christians and possibly Gentile believers who had knowledge of Jewish religious practices and doctrines. So we have Jewish folk who have now converted into uh, Christianity or the way as it would have been known at that time. And you also have Gentile believers who were not a part of the Jewish tradition who have now stepped in and believe that Jesus is the Messiah and have knowledge of the Jewish practices. The general consensus among scholars is that the letter was likely written to a community of believers facing pressures, challenges, and the risk of drifting away from their faith. So part of that Um, brings evidence that this was most likely sent to a community maybe outside of Rome that was dealing with the pressures of the Roman Empire, the influence of um, political and cultural pressures that they they were feeling or experiencing. And again, even though the exact identity and location of the original recipients remains uncertain, the letters, teachings, and exhortations hold relevance and application for all believers. Throughout history, including those facing similar challenges and pressures in various cultural contexts, so is there something to be said about the book of Hebrews in the sense that, that it, it has been timeless in the sense of how it speaks to communities that are um, being influenced or feeling the pressures of their cultural climates, politically, religiously, um, in regards to persecution and pressures to change. And so that's basically a, an overwhelming theme throughout the book of Hebrews. Um, there is this elevation of understanding who Jesus is, And then the second part of that is that we are called to be faithful servants of Christ. There is an encouragement and exhortation to the community to follow Christ, to understand what his role is. And so we learned about this a little bit um, the first week with Venia, understanding in chapter one, the superiority of Christ. In chapter one, the author of Hebrews establishes the supremacy of Jesus Christ over angels, The author highlights the divine nature of Christ, stating that he is the appointed heir of all things and the creator of the universe. The chapter emphasizes Christ's superiority to angels as he addressed by God, God the Son, and exalted above them. 
the author urges the readers to pay close attention to the message of salvation that has been delivered through Christ as it surpasses any revelation given through angels. So understanding that while they were dealing with, historically the church was dealing with what was called Gnostic beliefs. Okay, these very specific beliefs of um, the immaterial, uh, the separation of the body and the spirit, and this idea that maybe Jesus wasn't the son of God, but he was actually just an angel. He was an imprint. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's telling the community at that time, no, that's not who he was. He was the son of God. He was God himself incarnate. So in chapter two, we go into the humanity and the role of Christ. In chapter two, it builds on the previous chapter and focuses on the humanity of Jesus and his role as the savior. The author highlights the significance of Christ taking on human flesh, becoming like his brothers and sisters in order to bring salvation to humanity. Jesus's sufferings and death are portrayed as part of God's plan to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The chapter warns against neglecting such a great salvation and encourages the readers to hold firmly to their faith in Christ. So now we get to chapter three. And in chapter three, as we've read through, we understand that the writer is, is, is talking about Jesus compared to Moses. Jesus being the greater Moses. A prominent figure in Jewish history and the giver of the law, who was Moses, the author acknowledges the faithfulness of Moses as a servant in God's house, but then emphasizes that Jesus is superior to Moses as the son, of, son over God's house. The chapter highlights the danger of unbelief being the example of the Israelites in the wilderness who disobeyed and rebelled against God. The readers are exhorted to hold fast their confidence in Christ and to not harden their hearts through unbelief as it led to the Israelites' failure to enter God's rest. So there are two parts to this chapter that we're gonna dive into. The first being, what is the significance of Jesus being greater than Moses? And then what is the significance of the wilderness? So again, some of this is very uh, uh, academic, it seems, but it's important for us to understand the context. We have to understand our audience. We have to understand what they were going through in order to apply it to what God is trying to tell us today. So what is the significance of Jesus being greater than Moses? For those of us who went to Sunday school, for those of us who understand or remember what a flannel graph is, right? Moses is a very prominent figure in Scripture. But what makes him, or what makes Jesus greater than Moses? Moses did some amazing things, right? He's part of the history of the Israelites being exiled or moving out of Egypt and into the promised land. He leads them. He guides them. He receives the law. He's a part of an an instrument of God's miracles and prophetic warnings, The significance of Jesus being greater than Moses is that Jesus as the son of God. The author of Hebrews establishes Jesus' superiority by emphasizing his divine nature as the son of God. While Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, Jesus is the son of God's house. This highlights the distinction between a servant and the son, signifying Jesus' unique authority and preeminence. Essentially, what the author is saying is, What the author is saying is is that Moses was the torch, but Jesus is the light. While Moses may be the instrument of the moment for that period of history and what God was doing, he was just one building block 
and the greater building block of Jesus's story. So we have to understand that Jesus is the son of God. He is God himself. And this is what makes him more superior to Moses and the law. We have to recognize that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Moses served as the mediator of the old covenant, which was characterized by the law and its rituals. However, Jesus is the mediator of the better covenant, the new covenant, which is based on better promises, which we'll see in Hebrews 8, 6. The new covenant established through Jesus' sacrifice brings forgiveness of sins, a transformed heart, and an intimate relationship with God. This is why in Scripture, in the New Testament, Paul writes, the law could not suffice. He is writing to the Judaizers, as it's said in Scripture, that the law will not save you. So for those of us who have maybe grown up in a more conservative, legalistic background, many of us grew up in do this, don't do this. If I do this, God will bless me. If I don't do this, God will bless me. If I do what I'm not supposed to do, then I deserve cursing and uh, banishment or uh, basically what we would consider karma. But as Christians, we don't believe in that. We believe in a relationship with a God, a father who is walking with us through our trials and tribulations. So many of us grew up with this, do this, don't do this. And then many times we've been told to put God into our debt. Many of us grew up with, if I, write, if I watch the right movies, if I don't say cuss words, if I go to D group, if I do X, Y, Z, if I pray every day, then God will bless me. But the problem is, if you read scriptures, there are faithful men and women who do all the right things and things still go bad for them. And we have to understand, as I said earlier, we cannot put God in our debt. There is nothing you can physically do that will save you from the, from the chasm that is between us and God without Jesus. So many of us have grown up with the Ten Commandments, right? We've We've known, some of us have known the Ten Commandments. Maybe if you <clears throat> grew up, um, obviously in the 90s, moral majority kind of political stuff, right? There was always these debates about like the Ten Commandments being outside of a government building, right? And big debates about it, right? Fighting over the Ten Commandments, that this is God's law, which I always found really interesting and really funny because most people who were fighting for it don't even follow the Ten Commandments. So that's, that's a whole other conversation. But, we have to understand that the law was a diagnostic. This law that was given to Moses was a diagnostic for the reality of what God's standard is. So the Ten Commandments is a great attribute for living. It's a great guideline for living, right? It's not that we shouldn't adhere to those things. The problem is most of us, and I would say most of us in this room, have broken a few of them, if I'm not correct. Um, we'll start with one of them. Um, thou shalt not lie. Is there anybody here who has never lied before? Anybody? No, I'm just, I'm just saying, if you want to, you can raise your hand. This is confession time. You don't have to, but, but all of us have broken it in some way. It's a diagnostic. And what I mean by diagnostic, so for those of you who unfortunately may have had to go to a doctor and get some testing done, right? You go in, they run these tests, and, and then unfortunately you get the news from the doctor um, we're, we're sorry, you're, you're, you're sick. And it's not, it's not really curable. 
the diagnostic is not the cure, right? The diagnostic is what's telling you what's wrong. The cure is Jesus. Jesus is the antidote to the fact that we cannot live up to this law and these rituals. Jesus is providing a better covenant, a better way of living. That is why when Jesus comes on the scene, he is saying this is how the law can be summed up and that ultimately you cannot fulfill it unless you come through me. So we recognize that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And the author of Hebrews is trying to explain specifically to Jewish Christians that your rituals and what you're doing are empty now. That truly the greatest of all of these things is Jesus. It's not about your doing or what you do or don't do. It's about understanding who Jesus is and how you can answer the questions that he's asking. In the the next part of the chapter, he goes on, the the writer goes on, Jesus' work of redemption. So the sacrificial system established by Moses in the Old Testament was temporary and required continual offerings for sins. In contrast, Jesus offered himself as the perfect and eternal sacrifice for sin once and for all. And this is cited in Hebrews 10.10. His work on the cross provides complete forgiveness and reconciliation with God, surpassing the temporary and symbolic nature of the Mosaic sacrifices. Y'all, living under the law, living under the ritualistic system before Jesus was very difficult. It was very hard It was very expensive. It was very time-consuming. It was a weight. It was a burden. And ultimately, Jesus came to release us from that burden. The author also recognizes Jesus' faithfulness. While Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, Jesus is portrayed as the faithful son who fulfills God's promises perfectly. Jesus' obedience and faithfulness unto death demonstrates his superiority over Moses and serves as an example for believers to follow. Jesus models what it means to be fully human and fully alive. Jesus walks and lives in a way that is foreign to our cultural economics. He is the one who bears witness to the reality of the kingdom, as we have learned in chapter one and chapter two. And ultimately that he is the ultimate revelation of God. The author of Hebrews emphasizes that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's nature and character. While Moses had direct encounters with God, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. While Moses heard God from the burning bush, the voice was Jesus. the shadow of things to come. Moses was an instrument. Moses was one piece in the greater building block of scripture. One of the things that I've always been fascinated by is funerals in the Bible. You ever notice how long funerals last in the Bible? They're like one verse. You read a story about Moses, right? Moses does all these great things, right? He's seen miracles. He's been the leader. 
done all this stuff. It's so fantastic. And in scripture, when you read scripture, it says, Moses died and then Joshua. Didn't we not just see Moses do all these great things? Like, does he not at least get like a chapter or something, right? About all his faithfulness and goodness? No. One of the realities we have to understand as followers of Jesus, maybe as leaders, is that God has not hinged anything on us. Moses was faithful. He did all those things. But the reality is the man goes in the ground and the message goes on. And so Moses goes down and then Joshua takes the mantle. And in many ways, as followers, as followers of Jesus, we have to be able to pass the baton to the next person. We have to be willing to share the gospel. We have to know that this is not all about us. These miracles, these experiences, we get to participate in it. We've been invited into it, but it's not about us. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying it wasn't about Moses and what he did with the Israelites. It's about the greater picture and his son is at the center of it. And we have to ask that question for ourselves. Do I see Jesus the center of everything that is happening to me, will happen to me, has happened to me, and will be with me for eternity? As Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will see me in paradise. Jesus being the center that operates outside of space and time that just moves beyond what our linear mind can understand and think and comprehend. So the writer of Hebrews is elevating, helping us understand that Jesus is the message. Jesus is the reason we do all the things that we do. Jesus is who we are as a community. So we should not be tempted to fall back into religious or legalistic ways of living. And as we'll get to later, maybe licentious behavior. But ultimately, we should understand that what Jesus has done should have an impact on our life and how we move forward. So when he gets through with this idea of who Moses is and elevating Jesus up, he gives a warning and he reminds us of the wilderness. So for those of you who need a refresher, Moses goes, helps the, leads the Egyptian, or not the Egyptian, sorry, leads the Israelites out of Egypt towards the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they wander the desert for 40 years. So what is the significance of the wilderness and why is there a warning of the wilderness in this chapter? The significance of the wilderness in Hebrews 2 can be understood in relation to the broader narrative of the Israelites' journey from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. The wilderness represents a pivotal and challenging period in their history, marked by testing, rebellion, and God's faithfulness. In Hebrews 3, the author draws upon this wilderness experience to convey spiritual truths and lessons for the Jewish Christians of their time. So they're in the desert. They're wandering around. They know that, they're, they're, that God has this promise. I'm going to lead you to the promised land that I promised your forefathers. I promised Abraham. And they wander. And the reason they wander is because of several incidents that happen in the desert. They get impatient with, for waiting for Moses to come down the mountain when he's receiving the Ten Commandments. And in their impatience, they build a golden calf and they bow down to the golden calf. They mumble and they grumble about being in the desert. 
and many times saying, it would be better for us just to go back to Egypt. At least we were full and fed in Egypt. There's a rebellion, mutiny against Moses. And so they wander around and in their disobedience, God has to do a work on that generation. And unfortunately tells one generation, you all have to die out before I take the next generation to the promised land because your hearts are so hard to me. The problem was that while the Israelites were physically free from their bondage, they were not spiritually free. They had spent so much time in Egypt that the culture had colonized them. And their expectations were different. And it was not easy. They did not trust God's promise of a new land. They did not trust him in his provision. They were self-seeking. And again, as I said, ultimately, grumbled about, maybe it'd be better if we just go back to Egypt. It'd be better for us to be in bondage, physically. What is the significance of this for us? What are the warnings that are significant to us? In some ways, we all struggle with the desire to return to Egypt. All of us have a story. All of us have a place we've come from, whether that is someone who's grown up in a Christian home, known Jesus their entire life, maybe has struggled with doubt, struggled with questions about their faith and growing up in that environment, or there are those who have been down in the gutter, right? Didn't know Jesus, making all the wrong decisions, and the Lord has brought you back and brought you into the fold. In all our own ways, in all our own conditioning, as we will see, we struggle with this desire to return to what is comfortable and what is familiar. If not the one we were, not the, the area or the place we were born into, the Egypt we were born into, but even by the ones that we have chosen to create for ourselves, opposite of what God has called us to. There is a quote by A.W. Tozer. It's one of my favorite uh, pastors and authors to read. This is exemplified by the fact that I need my dog Tozer. So, but A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer was a pastor, sometimes had been seen as a early Protestant mystic. But he writes this. He says in his book, The Pursuit of, of God, he writes, millions call themselves by his name. It is true and pay some token homage to him. But a simple test will show you how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who or what is above and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However, the man may protest, the proof is in the choice he makes day after day throughout his life. What you love and what you long for is... Uh, is seen in your choices that you make every day. What buys your time, what you give your attention to, what you run to when things are difficult. Ultimately, all of these things give us insight into deep down who we really are and where our affections are. 
So these are the, this is the Egypt that I believe that many of us face in our current cultural com- context. And the, the Egypt looks like this in our Western culture today. A materialistic mindset. Living in the West, we have a very materialistic mindset. Many people in our culture are driven by consumerism, the market, and pursuit of material possessions. There can be a constant desire for the latest gadgets, fashion trends, luxurious experiences. This materialistic mindset can lead to a never-ending cycle of seeking happiness and fulfillment through, through external possessions, often resulting in dissatisfaction and a perpetual longing for more. We have a desire to escape into things, into the freedom to purchase and to buy. Freedom is about what you can control with the dollar. It is a danger in America and in the Western culture. Are there anybody out there who like has a lot of stuff? And when I say a lot of stuff, like, stuff you know you're not supposed to, you, sh- you really don't have any use for it, but you still hold on to it because there might be one day where you might use it. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I will say I'm not one of those people. Um, there, I, I, I am always baffled. I might step on some toes. Some people might feel attacked, so I apologize. I'm always baffled by the things that people keep. Like, my mom's here, so I love you, mom. She brings over a, a, a few weeks ago, she bring, or it, was, it was a couple months ago, she brings over a box. She's like, this is your stuff. Okay, pretty sure. I, I don't know what, what stuff is this. I open it up. It's all my schoolwork from the last like 18 years. What am I supposed to do with this? I'm not very sentimental, Okay. I'm not. My wife, my wife gets on to me about it all the time. She's like, you're just going to throw out like everything that is, you know, part of our family and our memories. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with it. It's just stuff. Like, I mean, it's a nightmare, like picking up my kids from daycare. Mommy, daddy, I made this for you. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Hey, this is great. Go downstairs, throw it in the trash. Love you. Right. It's terrible. Okay. But that's just me. Like, I just don't deal well with things, like the things. Like, I know what I need and want. And other things, like, I just, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with it. So, reading about this, I'm, I'm, I'm like, sometimes I'll be driving down the road, specifically in Greensboro. Like, do we need another storage facility? Like, do we need more storage units in this town? Like, I just don't. That's just me. I just don't understand why we need it. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for more storage. I don't know how many other people are out there. And there are a lot of reasons people get storage, right? There's transition to life. There's emergencies. There's things that have happened. There's also people who buy storage because they have no room in their house and they just can't let go of their stuff. I read an article that the storage industry in America is a $39 billion industry. Clearly, I guess I should be investing in storage units. I don't know. People are attached to their stuff. And what we learn is that eventually it's not that we own the things, but the things actually end up owning us because we don't know how to let go of it. 
because there's something deep down inside of us that we've attached ourselves to it. And to let that go would be let ourselves go in some way. We have to be mindful of what we have and what we should give away, as Jesus has called us to give away, to use. It's a lot easier to escape into our items sometimes more than we realize. And it's easy for us to say, well, that's not me. And I confess, there are things that I probably spend money on that I'm like, I probably shouldn't have spent money on that. It wasn't really necessary in this moment. Something that you learn as an adult is the difference between wants and needs. A lot of times my wife is like, we need that. I'm like, we don't need that. We want that, but we don't need it, right? I do the same thing. There's a materialistic mindset that we have to be cognizant of. There's a consumeristic mindset. There's, a, there's an area of the market that dominates our psyche here in Western culture that we have to be mindful of. The other aspect of the Egypt that we live in is instant gratification. Our culture promotes instant gratification with the availability of technology, online shopping, entertainment at our fingertips. And this can foster a mentality of seeking immediate pleasure and avoiding discomfort or delayed gratification. The desire for quick fixes and instant results can hinder long-term goals, personal growth, and the ability to endure challenges. Great meals that I've ever eaten are cooked. They're not microwaved. Yet so often we would prefer a microwaved experience in order to skip the growth and the process of what is cooking within our own lives, our own souls, our own spirits. And we have to be mindful of that. Do we have the space to endure? Are we creating space to endure? Or are we living in such a way that instant results are the only way that we can feel fully human? There's also a fear of the unknown that we live in. Like the Israelites, our culture often fears the unknown and clings to what is familiar, even if it is not beneficial. Stepping out of comfort zones, embracing change, and taking risks can be challenging because of their uncertainties. The fear can lead to resistance to change, missed opportunities, and a reluctance to pursue personal growth or follow a different path. There are many of us in this room, and I know for myself I can say this, who are risk averse. We cling to what we know because we believe that is what has gotten us this far. There might be someone in this room today who is contemplating a risk that they need to take. Maybe the Lord is inviting you into doing something that is uncomfortable outside of what you know or how to do. And the question is, are you willing to trust him over what you know, to be able to risk something. In some ways to roll the dice and know that the dices will fall where the Lord intends them to fall for you. There's always this conversation my wife and I sometimes have and it's always these life decisions we have to make, right? And there's a fork in the road. Well, if we go this way, it'll make more sense this way. But if we go this way, I think we should do this. But I just want somebody to tell me which way I'm supposed to go. Like, are we making the wrong decision? The reality is, life with Christ, there's not really any, let me preface this. There are wrong decisions. But 
Is there really any wrong decision when you've trusted and prayed and done the work that is necessary for God to lead you in that direction? And to trust he has it. At some point, you have to let go of the wheel. (laughs) You have to let go. And you have to ask yourself, "I, I don't know, but I'm trusting you, Lord. And I'll do it. Read scripture. Great men and women of faith. Faith. Faith trusted the Lord. And that is the redemptive glory that comes through those stories is the fact that Jesus came through. Lastly, or last two, comparison and social pressure. Social media and the digital age have amplified the culture of comparison and the pressure to portray an idealized version of one's life. People may feel the need to conform to societal expectations, comparing their lives to others, seeking validation through likes, followers, external measures of success. The constant comparison can breed discontentment, self-doubt, and a longing for a life that seems more appealing or perfect. This has been a long-standing issue that we have been dealing with, particularly since the smartphone. It's comparison. Comparing ourselves to, what am I, what am I missing out on? How is it that I get that? How do I, how do I live into that? I have a very loving and honest thing I want to tell you when that comes up. Stay in your lane. We all have a lane. And most of the time, some people can pretty up their lane better than yours. But it doesn't change the fact that that's their lane and God has created a lane for you to run in. We're called to run a race, as Paul says. And when you run a race, everyone has their own lane. And the way to win that race is to stay in your lane. So I tell you, when the pressure or the anxiety of comparing yourself to someone else and their life and what's going on in their life, First of all, understand that it's not, it's not as going as well as they're portraying it most likely. And second of all, you have your lane. Trust the lane that the Lord has placed before you. And ask yourself the question is, what lane am I supposed to be running in? And stay there. Trust the Lord is doing a work in your life and in your story. And then lastly, which was very hard for me, I will say this last one was very hard for me, seeking escape and distraction. In the face of challenges, stress, or boredom, individuals may turn to various forms of escapism. This can include excessive consumption of entertainment, substance abuse, or compulsive behavior that provide temporary relief or distraction. Such behaviors can hinder personal growth, emotional well-being, and the ability to confront underlying issues. I am the world's worst about getting in a stressful situation, being exhausted at the end of the day, and pulling out my phone and just scrolling through it. Because it's a lot easier to see what's going on in other places, other people's lives than to deal with my own life. And half the time, it's not even anything big that I'm having to deal with. It's just exhaustion. It's the lack of margin that I have not built into my life. There are many things that we can escape into. And a lot of them are the things that we've talked about. It could be shopping. It could be Unfortunately, it could be substance abuse. It could be a number, a myriad of things. The biggest thing too is it's not necessarily just evil things. It can be things that are seen as neutral. Watching Netflix, getting on YouTube, on Instagram. 
Sometimes for some people, it's pulling into McDonald's or Wendy's or Starbucks. I deserve this. I need to treat myself with this. Okay, that's fine. It also could be that you're just finding a way to avoid what you need to confront or the ability to acknowledge I feel a certain way about my day. I didn't like the way that conversation went. I, I feel this pressure of being a dad or a mom or a husband or wife, whatever it may be, I feel the pressure of being a student. And the best way to do this is not necessarily to really maybe go for a run or walk in scripture, or whatever. It's better just to go do these other things because I feel like I owe that to myself. It's a lot easier. Escapism is an epidemic in Western society because we've insulated, we've, we've, we have this myth of progress where we insulate ourselves from suffering and having to look in the mirror The reality is Jesus offers a way around all of that to confront those things and to move through it just as the Israelites had to go through the wilderness. There is a place for us to understand that God is trying to do a work in our lives. Are we we turning to look at it or are we escaping into things to distract ourselves from that? So, Transitioning, and I'm going to close up here soon, I promise. Transitioning, one of, one of the things I was doing this week and when I prep um, is something that some, actually a few people know about me, not everyone knows about me, is um, I, I like to listen to music when I prep my sermons. Um, I listen to very interesting music. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a metalhead. Uh, I grew up in sort of this like metalcore scene thing. I was one of those kids like going to bars and clubs on weekends and listening to guys gutturally roll, roar out of the mic and all those things. And so um, I, I was listening to a metal album and a metal band while I was actually prepping my sermon. And one of those bands is a band called Silent Planet. Um, and they are named after the C.S. Lewis uh, science fiction book, Silent Planet. Um, one of my favorite bands, uh, their lead singer, Garrett Russell, dude with the cardigan right there, the gray cardigan, actually has a BA and a master's in clinical psychology. Um, has done a lot of work with, field work with therapy. Um, and he wrote this song called The Vanity of Sleep. Um, and so I, I really, really wanted to play the song for you this morning. I'm like, what a great excuse to play metal music in church. Um, however, as my wife says, I understand that's, that genre of music is an acquired taste. So I'm not going to play the song. However, I did want to read a few of the lyrics as a means of poet, poetry and understanding the climate that we live in. So in Vanity Sleep, he talks about this idea of consumer despair. And as I was listening to the song and reading the lyrics, I thought to myself, this is such an indication of the Egypt that we currently live in, in our society. So I'm going to read this as a, almost as poetry in some way. And hopefully it will elevate in an artistic way this idea of of living in Egypt. So in the song, he says, he says, this is a love affair with consumer despair. 
an emptiness I can call my own, an arbitrary sanctuary where we deposit prayers to a dispensable God. Welcome to the end stage age where joy is a pill and love's a prescription, vaccinated with an outward suspicion. Isolation became pre-existing condition, manifested drudge of my mass manufactured consent. But there's a gaping hole in my consciousness, a deep that cries out to deep. This is a love affair with consumer despair, an emptiness I can call my own, an antidote for mystery. Our indifference is deafening. There's a presence here. It stirs inside the static dissonance of discontent that refused to relent. I built a home overlooking a graveyard to remind myself I'm still alive. Yet you see a flaw still abides as I witness an ending that I cannot contrive. We watched a golden array of a casket parade as wealth makes its final display to the ground. I found it strange that even in this place, death became such a gainful exchange. Give me something to hold. Give me something that bleeds. I'll scour the earth for my identity. Is there a cure for a sick society? So rich in this world, so in debt to ourselves, the network of life in such a disconnect. How many times must we die this death? Annihilation is all we are. Desolation is everything I know. All we are is all we love, and everything I know is destructible. Artificial heart, obsidian soul, encircled by dreams that are combustible. We trade the garden, I love this line, we trade the garden for cities, the tree for a tower. Surrendered our faith, became addicted to power. I know that hope grows inside the wound, and I know progress is empty. I must be consumed. So I'll dig through these masks till I find my face, separate from the false pretense I embrace. It kills me to know that you'll never find peace. You can have all the world, but you'll never be free. Tear the stitches sewn across my existence. Cut me out from this nothingness. Dust will come and lay to rest our fleeting, fading silhouettes. We trade the garden for cities and a tree for a tower. We believe in this Egypt that we have fulfilled progress in a human way, in a human condition. But what we are understanding is anxiety and depression continues to increase and increase with each generation that there is something broken and there's something wrong in this Egypt. We have to understand that again, that while we have traded a garden for cities and a tree for a tower, we are called to return to our first love. And Jesus is that first love. Jesus is not just superior to Moses. He is superior to our past and where we have come. He invites us to something greater than we could ever imagine. And we have to understand there are building blocks. You may be in here today and you're wondering, Jay, like there's a lot of things that have happened in my life. And I just, I don't think you really understand the depth and and the reality of what I'm dealing with in my own life. And you're probably right, I don't understand. But there is someone who does, and that's Jesus. And he invites you. He invites you to the table. He invites you to the community. He invites you to persevere. We have to understand that while the wilderness is a difficult place to be in, and we are all called into the wilderness, the wilderness is where God does his greatest work. Jesus is invited into the wilderness after he is baptized. We are invited into the wilderness as followers of Jesus. And it is in that place in the wilderness that he is able to to cut out of us this idea that Egypt was better than where he's taking us. That the false perceptions, the false promises of of what the world is offering does not compare to what God is offering. 
Henry Nouwen was a Dutch Catholic priest and professor, writer, and theologian. And he says this. He says, the wilderness is not just a place of deprivation and struggle. It is also a place of transformation and encounter with God. It is where we learn to depend on him and experience his provision. We must be able to embrace the wilderness, not avoid it, not escape from it, but trust that God is doing something in the wilderness within us and for us. There is a warning in the wilderness, and that warning is present in chapter three. There are consequences for disobedience in the wilderness. But it is hopefully that through that, we are able to look at ourselves and understand that God is doing something better and greater in our own lives. So these are the things that we must do in the wilderness to be faithful, to persevere. We're called to trust in God. Just as the Israelites had to trust God's guidance and provision in the wilderness, Christians are called to trust in God's faithfulness. Even in times of uncertainty or difficulty, there will be difficulty. There is difficulty. And there's many of us in this room who can attest to that difficulty. But we must trust in what the Lord is doing. We have to persevere in faith. The wilderness journey can be challenging and fraught with obstacles, but we are called to persevere our faith. This includes remaining steadfast in the face of trials, holding fast to God's promises, and staying committed to the path of righteousness. We need to seek God's presence. How you encounter God every day matters. He is not just one more check off the to-do list. He is the priority of everything we do each day. So how you start your day, how you go throughout your day, is God present in it? Is he present in when you wake, when you eat your breakfast or food, when you go to work, when you go to school, in your discipleship of your kids and your family? Is he present in all things? And are you requesting his presence? We have to learn from our past mistakes. We have to repent. Repentance is meaning that we understand what we did and we're moving in a direction that is different. The Israelites' rebellion and lack of faith serve as a warning to Christians. We are called to learn from their mistakes and not repeat them. This includes recognizing the dangers of disobedience, grumbling, and idolatry, and striving to live in alignment with God's will. In what ways are we being disobedient? In what ways are we grumbling? In what ways have we turned to things that we believe will suffice for our identity? And in what ways are we striving to live in the way that God has called us to? We have to embrace the transformation that God is doing in our lives. We have to be able to taste and to see that he is good. To understand that God is in a process of transformation. It doesn't happen overnight. Sanctification is a long, long process. But we have to ask that question again as well. Are we willing to embrace the transformation that God is doing? Are we understanding that it will not happen overnight? That is a long process. And lastly, but not least, we have to be willing to share the gospel. If this story, as a follower of Jesus, if this story has impacted you so much in your life, in what ways are you passing the baton to someone else? In what way are you inviting someone to taste and to see that it is good? We have to be called, or we are called to share the gospel. As Jesus said in his last before he ascended in his commission that he gave the disciples. Go, make disciples, telling them to obey. We are called to obey and obedience is a part of that. Sharing the gospel is a part of that obedience. Are we willing to share the gospel? Are we willing to share the good news that we have experienced? 
So as I close, and I'll invite the band to come up. Two questions that I want to leave you with. When you think about this idea of your own Egypt, that you feel like the Lord has been giving you out or has pulled you out. The questions I want to leave you with are, what is your allure to familiarity? What is your comfort that maybe God is calling you out of? And what do you risk turning back to? What is it going to cost you? Is it worth the cost? There are great addictions. There are small things. There are great compromises. There are small compromises. The reality is they're all the same. And we have to understand that the Lord is trying to do something deeper in us. One of the things that happened or happens before the Israelites leave is they, they experience Passover. And before Jesus leaves his disciples, he has one last meal with them at the Passover supper and the last dinner or last supper. And he invites them to the table. And as we do each week here at Emmaus, we are invited to the table. We are invited to celebrate our own Egypt that we have been brought out of and that the Lord continues to lead us out of until he returns again. And so this morning, the invitation still stands. Now, I realize that there are some of you who may be in this room, and I don't want to assume, have, don't know if you're in Egypt now. Don't know if who Jesus is and what's he calling you to, and there's a lot of questions there. But I want to let you know this morning that you're still being invited. There's a wooing and a calling that is happening in your heart. So we will now take partake in, in communion. Um, and the band will play. Um, I'm going to...